0: Uh, Today, I want to talk about shaping the destiny of your marriage. It applies, of course, to singles. As Each message, I think, has applied to singles in terms of just relating to other people and loving those close to you. Uh, But I want to deal with it within the context of of marriage. We've talked about leaving and cleaving and true sexuality, growing the glory of your spouse uh, in two parts. And today, I want to deal with with shaping the destiny of your relationship. And then next week, on the fact of marriage, which is our relationship to God, And then there's no marriage in heaven. And what does that all mean? How does it all work out? What are the implications for how we walk out our lives today? Because they're vast. And so I just felt the need to just complete the whole theological grasping of of this intimacy issue with regards to marriage. So uh, with that, let's read, beginning at Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. And uh, again, the theme is going to be shaping the destiny of your marriage. Verse 1, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? That plank would be like a a beam used to hold up a, a large building. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eyes. You can see Jesus' desire is that we would see clearly to remove specks from the eyes of of each other. So let's pray and uh, commit this time to the Lord. Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, your words, which resound through the corridors of history. And heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never pass away. And Father, many of us, we've read this text before, even studied it, heard it preached. But Father, you have an application for us today. For each one of us in our walk with you. And so Lord, I pray and we pray for the moving of the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, to lead us into all truth, to lead us to Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, how many of you saw the movie Apollo 13? Okay, if you remember the movie was about these uh, three astronauts, that went up uh, in 1969, right after they'd walked on the moon, Neil Armstrong, and they were the second spacecraft to go. And Tom Hanks plays one of the astronauts. And as you know, on the way up to the moon, they get in some mechanical trouble, and not only are they not going to land on the moon, the question is, are they going to even be able to return to Earth? And so the movie is all about their struggle to get back to Earth. And uh, it's a true story. It was a national crisis at the time, international crisis at the time. Just the question, were they going to make it back to Earth alive? And uh, on the ground was NASA and all of their, really you know, the best minds and scientists in the world at that time, trying to get them back to Earth. Now, the, the director of flight operations was played by Ed Harris, and his name was Gene Krantz, and he was the leader. Who basically had to, you know, organize and move with all the different talents and giftings to get them back to Earth, and uh, it's really a great movie. He mobilizes hundreds, if not thousands, of people to to bring all their resources to bear, so they would make it back. Now, one of the climaxes of the movie is the fact that all their flight plans, all their flight plans, got thrown out the window, and they have to improvise, improvise, and the odds become greater and greater that they'll ever ever get to Earth. And at one point, he makes this statement. Ed Harris, the leader of the group, he says, listen, in the midst of all this negativity, he says, we are not going to lose those men. Failure is not an option. It's one of the great lines. He says, failure is not an option. And so as all the negatives in the movie grow, and the fact that it doesn't look like they're going to make it back to Earth because of a typhoon, because of these heat plates, whether they were going to explode, whether the shields would hold up, whether their parachutes would be frozen. and just such negativity in the press as well as within NASA itself whether they'd ever make it home alive. But his comments at the height of negativity was this. With all due respect, he says to one of the other leaders, I believe this is going to be our finest hour. And so he brings all the resources to bear to make this thing succeed and they eventually get home. It's a great, great movie, great, great story. But his position that failure is not an option is is an example of what true leadership is, what it truly means to be a warrior. As you look at marriage, and we look at what marriage is, that is the warrior spirit with which everyone is to take into going into marriage as singles or being a married couple. The fact of failure, and I mean failure, not just divorce, but failure in terms of even living a level of uh, relationship that is not godly. Two parallel lives without great intimacy is not God's intention. And to say, no, failure is not an option, and we're going to bring every resource to bear to make this thing be what God intends. And that's what God's calling us to. And so I want to talk to you about this whole shaping the destiny of our marriage, and really just two simple parts based on this text. The first is this, that it requires... In fact, these two critical issues, uh, our grasping of them will affect the growth curve of your marriage if you're married here today, whether it's a positive one or a negative one. And the two issues are this. It's a willingness, number one, to be repentant. Number one is just a willingness to be repentant. And I'll talk about that, what that means. And the second is a willingness to do good. And I'll talk about what that means. All right, so let's just kind of step back for a minute and let me give you some context to this Sermon on the Mount passage. Remember we talked about God made us to have perfect fellowship with Him. Before there was sin in the world, Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship with God. They had a perfect relationship with each other, total vulnerability, total nakedness. Can you imagine a relationship where there's no conflict, no tension, no double meanings of what someone says, no struggles? They had that kind of total nakedness, total vulnerability with each other. They had a perfect marriage. They had a perfect relationship with God. But then they disobeyed God, went their own way. Sin enters. God re- releases the curse, which was uh, really a discipline based on their rebellion And now there's, instead of a perfect relationship with God and with each other, there's shame, there's conflict, there's embarrassment, there's negativity, there's blaming, there's killing of each other with words. And uh, God releases the curse saying this. Number one, all of your relationships from now on will be marked by sin. Relationships will be a struggle. Genesis 3, verse 16. Women will want to control men. Men will want to dominate women. And there will be now a battle within all marriages. And not only that, but work will be marked by battle. Just working, no matter what your job is, even your success, in any job, any pursuit, will leave you with a feeling of futility, the sweat of your brow, the sense of emptiness. This doesn't fully satisfy me. And that's called the fall, the curse. And, and uh, the purpose of that from God was not that we'd get angry, not that we'd run away, but that we would, we would be broken by our sin and broken by our pain in life, as we walk through life, and that breaking from our sin would drive us to our need for a Savior. That was God's purpose, and in, in the pain that we all experience in life would be to, that we would surrender to the gospel. We'd be broken by our sin and surrender to God. So that's why marriage was the place of the first sin, and there is no marriage that is not marked by great pain. But at the same time, in marriage, there's opportunity for great joy. And God's heart is that we would break through kind of living a plateaued life into really what He has for us. So, the two issues I want to go into today are this. One is the willingness to repent, number one. And the second is, if you're going to shape a destiny in the future, it's going to be a willingness to do good. Let's do one part at a time. Verse 1, it says, don't judge. Don't you love that? Do not judge, or you too... Will be judged. Now, when it says don't judge, let me just say what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you don't think. It doesn't mean that you don't have discernment. Because all other, there are a lot of other commands in the Scriptures about beware of false prophets and rebuke sin and restore those who are falling away. And so we're called to, to make discerning judgments. We are called to do that. But when it says don't judge or you two will be judged, uh, he's referring to a spirit and an attitude that's not done the prior work of being willing to be repentant. Okay, so, but he is saying this, that your relationship with other people has a direct relationship in your relationship with God. He says, don't judge or you too will be judged. With the measure you judge, it will be measured back to you. What he's saying is this, okay? The way you treat people is the way God will treat you. It's pretty heavy, isn't it? Blessed are the merciful, for they too will receive mercy. There's a direct relationship with your relationship with people and how you treat and view people and how God views and and treats you. So, it's saying this. Think of a cup. This is a glass of water I had today, okay? This is a pretty good-sized cup. It says, verse 2, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So, for example, if you look at people and your, your cup doesn't have a lot of mercy in it, say you have a very small cup of mercy for people and you tend to be a little bit on the judgmental side. Or the critical side. Here's what God says. With the measure you, Jesus says this. With the measure you use, so your cup is small, you have just a little bit of mercy for people. Well, let me tell you something, says Jesus. That's how big God's cup is going to be towards you. Isn't that that's heavy, isn't it? So if your cup is a little, the Lord says, well, that's how God's cup's going to be measured to you. It'll be little too. But if you have a lot of mercy, God will have a lot of mercy for you too. Sounds... Scary, doesn't it? And a lot of silence here. But here's what Jesus is pointing out. He says, listen, before you take the speck of sawdust out of your brother's eye, what does he say first? Take what out of your own? The log, the beam. And he's saying that basically we overestimate other people's faults and we underestimate ours. You know, we think our sins are bite-sized. We don't realize they're really the size of an elephant. You know, I mean, they're, they're gigantic. And uh, that we, 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 few of us see the sin problem correctly, as it really is. It distorts our, our understanding. And so many of us are very eager to help out. Hey, Howie, let me help you out here. I see some sawdust. And, and we're very eager to, to serve people by taking sawdust out of their eyes. Now, the, the amazing thing is really the most perceptive ones among us, and often very gifted ones, who tend to be the ones most eager to take sawdust out of everybody else's eyes. I know that doesn't apply to you, but others in this place. And, and, Very perceptive, and just, I mean, look around you. I mean, do you see sawdust? Some of you see large beams all over the place. I mean, you're having trouble seeing me because of all the logs up front here, you know. But Jesus' concern is this, is that we assess ourselves different. We don't assess ourselves correctly. We we don't analyze ourselves properly. And so we're not seeing like the redwood trees from out west. We're missing the boat. And so he's speaking here in the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples. He's also speaking to a lot of religious people, the Pharisees, who knew a lot about the Bible. They'd memorized the first five books of the Bible. They prayed you know, five times a day. They tied, They fasted. And he knows that they're, they're, they're in church, like many people in church today. And as you know, church people can be among the most arrogant and proud people of all. And he knows the Pharisees are condescending in their attitude. They're very opinionated. They tend to be proud. They're very religious, and they're unmerciful toward others. They just have a kind of an unmerciful attitude. Their cup of mercy is really small. And and so, as a result, when they're taking specks out of people's eyes, they're blinding people. Can you imagine going to to an ophthalmologist who has a log in his eye? (laughs) And he's going to check out your eye and get some specks out. Would you want to go to that ophthalmologist? There are a lot of people in the name of God floating around, taking sawdust out, With logs in their eyes, and they're beating up and blinding people. And that's what Jesus is going after here. And He's saying, You can only help somebody else get rid of their sawdust if you can see your log. But if you can't see your log, you are dangerous. You are unable, really, to love. You're unable to really grow glory in another person. In terms of marriage, you're really, you're, you're, this, This is so foundational. This is such a critical issue. This affects all of your life. And uh, so he's saying this, that we must know our sin. That's his point. In every marriage, if you live with a person, you have an opportunity to live out this verse every single day. If you have a very close friend, if you're single here, the people you're with constantly, you have an opportunity to walk out this verse every single day. And he says this. Look what he says in verse verse, 4. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? In other words, he's saying this. I must know that my sin is greater than my spouse's. Before I open my mouth. He's saying, as a, as a, as a believer... And we are called to take sawdust out of people's eyes. And I'll talk about that point too. We are called to do good to people. But first he says there must be a willingness to be repentant, broken by our sin and living a life of repentance of the fact that, you know something? I too, I don't just have a speck, I got a log. And like Paul at the end of his life said, I am the worst of all sinners. Now let me, let me help you with this because some of you are saying to yourself, you want me to repent? You're telling me to repent? You should know what my spouse is like. He's not even a Christian. She's not even a Christian. She, or he is a Christian. He, he's closed minded. He's arrogant. He's not open to Christ. He's not listening to the word. He comes to these sermons. He doesn't hear anything. He goes out. He comes in. He goes out. Or she goes out and comes in. They need to repent, not me. The Lord says, No, you don't understand. You need to repent. This is about your log first before your spouse's speck. Now, Let me try to help you. Because the Pharisees, and and I think we do, we have a hard time even knowing what is he talking about here. I am a child of God. I am a redeemed son of God. I'm a daughter of God. I know God. At the same time, you have to be able to say, yes, I'm a son, I'm a daughter of God. But I am also a murderer and an adulterer. You need to be able to say both things. And not just one. Now let, let let me try to explain this. In Matthew 5, 21 to 26, Jesus goes to the core of this issue of sin, and what he tried to do, just like Paul, was to help us understand that we have logs. It's very hard to see your own log. It's very hard for me to see my log. And he begins by talking about, remember he talked about lust, and he was, you guys think, well, if you don't commit adultery, you, you, you haven't, you sinned. He goes, no, if you've lusted in your heart, you've already committed sin already, and, and lust is referring to much more than just sexuality. Lust is, is a consuming desire, a demand. What lust is, is a desire gone mad. Okay, it's a, it's a, it's a craving for something that becomes a demand. That's lust. And uh, you see, we're all adulterers. That's why the word for idolatry in the New Testament is the word for lust. It's an overattachment for something. That's lusting for something. It's a craving demand. We're all adulterers here. I mean, I... This morning, I mean I, I mean, this, uh, yesterday I was in the park and it was this guy with a stretch limo. I was having my quiet time. My kid was playing a soccer game, I was having my quiet time. This fellow's there in a stretch limo and uh, he's, you know, he's having a nice drink, he's watching some TV, he's on the phone, he's just living it up at the park. And I looked at this. My transmission is bad. My engine's going. And I just started to lust for some of those good things the TV, the money, the lifestyle. But it doesn't take much to start to crave where it becomes a demand. Before I know, I'm very angry at my life and the fact that my transmission's not working. I gotta take days out to try to figure out how to fix this thing and just the hassle of of the life and it's very easy to fall into that. I wanted to get to a meeting on time this past week. My wife and I were driving in the car. I really wanted to get there on time. I don't like being late. My wife made a wrong turn. I killed her. I didn't say a word. But my craving to get there on time was so great. Are you following me? I want, it was so important to me that she became unimportant. And I, I, I murdered her. She got in my way of my craving. Some of us want, you know, we, we have, we're, we're, we're getting our degree. We're getting, another, we're getting our master's right now. We're getting our PhD. And we crave that. And that thing now becomes an idol, a lust. I'm, I'm going to get it. And we start clearing things out of the way. And we get angry at things that are in our way, we begin to murder people. You know what? I, I want to be liked. How many of us want to be liked at work? We want to be liked at school. We want to be liked by our family. And So we end up telling lies. We fabricate. We exaggerate. We, we, we all kinds of things because we crave people thinking good of me. And so that's more important, really, than God. We don't ever think it or say it, but the truth is that craving is such to be liked, to not be considered foolish, to not look weak or shameful. That it 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 it's an over attachment. It's lusting in the New Testament word. It's adultery. I don't see a lot of amens. My my reputation. Some of us want security. In money, we want security in our house, in an apartment, or we want to get married or we want to get divorced, you know, we want this so bad that a craving is such that it drives us to begin to do the second major thing, I don't just lust for things, I'm also a murderer, and I kill to get it, and uh, Jesus said murder is not about, as you know, it's not about actual murdering somebody, It's, it's it's the heart. It's the words out of your mouth. It's your attitude that he said, You guys murder all the time, but you don't see it. And Jesus was trying to help people see their logs. Come on, you know, again, John Calvin said, The evil in our desires typically does not lie in what we want, but that we want it too much. We want something just too much. It's not that it's a bad thing, it's just we want it so much, it's become a lust. It becomes adultery going after it. and uh, our hearts and minds, as he, John Calvin said, were idol-making factories. If you don't see yourself and your heart and your mind as an idol-making factory, you can't see the log in your own line. You know something? This first point I'm making and this verse of, means nothing to you because you don't have a log. And Jesus is saying, no, you do have a log. You're an adulterer. You're a murderer. Again, a murderer is, is hey, I don't know, I, I, murdered, I murdered God this morning. You know, I, was so, I was really mad about daylight savings time. I don't like it in the spring. I really like it in the fall. I like the extra hour. I got up. It was 5 o'clock. I said, it's 5 o'clock. It's Sunday. I didn't appreciate it. I I told him a thing or two. I asked forgiveness. You know how it is. But sometimes if I don't get my way, someone's going to have to pay for it. Did you ever get like that? You're just not getting your way. and so someone's going to have to pay for this until you come home. If you're married, you take it out on your spouse. And you yell at her, ah, I'm just letting off some steam. Yeah, you're murdered. Oh, look at, boy, it's so dramatic, Pete. No, it's what the Bible says. It's murder of a, of a person made in the image of God because you couldn't get your lust of what you wanted. You had a bad day, the train came late. Or you had traffic on the BQE again. Or the person didn't turn on the right when they were supposed to. And you had to wait there and you missed the green lights. And so you got angry. And so you know who to take it out on. So you came home and you blew up on them. You know some of us are very good at cutting comments. Some of us are very good at being perceptive at analyzing other people. Some of us are even great at withdrawing. We say nothing, and so we kill by our silence. And we murder. You see, I don't know if you ever thought about how much Paul is always harping on sin. Romans, Galatians, Romans 1 to 3. I mean, most of us don't read those chapters very often because they're depressing. (laughs) Because Paul is stripping away all of our illusions. Most of us like to live as if we're asleep. We live asleep in the illusion that everything's okay. I'm really not that bad. I mean, look around. Look at God. Look at these people. I'm not that bad. I mean, these people, maybe some of them. I'm, I'm all right. I mean, I didn't kill anybody. I'm... Murder and adultery, I mean, Lord, it's really he- and, and many of us live our lives, and so Jesus and Paul, with a vengeance, go at that pretending or that, that kind of sleepiness, and they go at it you know, by the Word and the Spirit to rip that down and say, no, you know something? You're a, you're a murderer and adulterer, and if you will see that, you'll be silenced. In Romans 3, Paul takes... You know, he goes, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And he, verses 9 to 20, he takes apart your mouth and your ears and your tongue. I mean, he goes, every part of your body, your entire being, he says, has been affected by sin. Yes, you've got a new heart and you're in Christ, but indwelling sin is in you. And therefore, every thought and feeling and motivation and action is affected and tainted by sin. And so therefore, you're to be silenced. You know, As you look at yourself, we are to be silenced. That's why the thought of doing penance, I used to do penance. Have you tried to do penance? I try to do it all the time, even now sometimes. You know, penance is, is when you say, you know, I feel bad about what I've done, God, and I'm going to try to make it up to you. See, if, that's what, if you do penance, you don't understand sin. Because if you understand your sin, you're silenced. You're, just, you're, you're, you're silenced. You're like, oh, I'm done. I'm done. What am, I, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? That's seeing the log in your eye. That is not a one-time experience like Richard had here. That is a life. That is a life, like Paul was able to say, at the end of his life, in 1 Timothy 1, I am the worst of sinners. I murder, and I'm an adulterer. I am silenced before God. And therefore, I am willing to live repentantly. Now, I don't know... This is hard work, isn't it? I mean, this, is, this is hard. I mean, I'd rather sing songs and Celebrate Jesus. So every time you see a wedding, you see a bride and a groom beautifully dressed, you say, wow, there are two glorious creatures made in the image of God. At the same time, these are two rebellious sinners who, except for the grace of God, are going to live only for themselves and their own interests and their own concerns. And in their blood is rebellion. And so you've got to hold both of them at once. And uh, the Pharisees just didn't hold the other one very well. But the purpose of this focus on sin and brokenness was to, of Paul and Jesus was to drive you and to drive me to say, I need Christ. It was to drive you to surrender to the gospel. I'm silenced. What am I going to do? You see, one of the key moments in, my, in our own marriage, my wife and I, was a willingness to repent. Now, we, we, we repented over some things, but there's a willingness to repent of the idolatry in our own marriage of things that we weren't willing to acknowledge as idols that were hindering us from following what God had for us as a couple. But to finally come to a place that called this these idols, these cravings that were in God's way, idols, was very difficult. We did not want to hear it. You see, I don't know about you, but to admit reality is really tough. To admit reality of what's really going on inside my heart. Really, where am I before God? Many of us have aces in the hole, you know, hidden things. That we think God doesn't see or nobody sees. God knows! But the first thing about shaping a destiny and a future in marriage or in relationships is a willingness to be repentant. For some reason, in the Christian life, many folks are repentant for a while and then all of a sudden jump into the other lane and become religious. Because it's painful to live wrestling with my heart before God, getting alone with God where the Spirit can do the work, getting in the Word of God where the Word can do the work, having people in my life that love me enough to tell me the truth and say, you know something, Pete? You're a murderer and adulterer. Look what you're doing over here. Because I like to surround myself with people who say all the nice things about me. So it takes finding those kinds of people and having fellowship like that that's real and genuine getting in the Word, asking the hard questions. And you know something? You know what's toughest about this? It's risky to see the log in my own eye. You know why? Because I'm so vulnerable. I'm so exposed. I don't like to be exposed to you. There's a proper shame and exposure of saying, oh, what a log I have in my eye. You see, that is the foundation of the Christian life, of loving people. Of repentance, you know, the evidence of repentance, the fruit of repentance, is seen in the way you treat people. See, Jesus will say, you can do all you want saying you've repented, but the truth is, if the mercy cup you have for people is still small, there's been no fruit of repentance. The measure with with which you receive mercy is the measure with which you give it out. Remember Jesus said in in Luke 7, He who has been forgiven little, what's he say? Loves little. He who has been forgiven much, loves much. So if you have a hard time, if you love little, Jesus says, you've been forgiven little. You've not seen your sin. So if you struggle with giving mercy out, Jesus says, you've not seen the depth of the log in your eye. You've not seen the fact that you are a murderer and an adulterer. You've not grasped the heart of the gospel, the very first step, which is who you are before God. You should be silenced. And you see, it's in that place where Jesus now, uh, I kill people. I kill people. But you know something? God wants to dance with me. Think about that. I kill people. I murder people. And yet God loves me. He wants to dance with me. That's the prodigal sons all over. That's forgiveness. God wants you to forgive you. He wants to dance with you. He loves you that much. You see, I can offer you I can offer you to free your debt because I've had my debt forgiven. Are you following me? I desire to cancel your debt that you owe because God's canceled mine. Because I've been forgiven so much now it moves me out to the next step. So okay, number one is this. I know this wasn't a fun point but it was a critical point. If you're going to have healthy relationships just period and learn to love If you're going to shape the destiny of your marriage, as a married couple here. Number one is before you touch the speck in your spouse's eye, number one is say, you know something? I'm a murderer and an adulterer, and I have a log in my eye. Now, carefully, you can go and take the speck out. Amen? That's real amen. All right, thank you. All right. So it's a willingness, number one, to live repentantly, which is hard work. All right, number two is this. It's a willingness to do good. Now, it picks up, that flows right out of number two. Now, look, it says in verse four, five, that we are to clear, see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eyes. In other words, to do good is to take the speck out of Joe's eye. People have specks. It means to do good to people. Now, what does that mean to do good? Remember, Psalm 62, verse 11 says, O oh Lord, you are loving and you are strong. You're merciful and you're strong. That's who God is. So to do good to someone is not to be only merciful. Oh yeah, we're, uh, yeah you're, 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 you're critical, you're negative, you're arrogant, but it's okay, I forgive you, it's, it's fine. I love you. That, that's not loving that person. So some of us are very good at mercy. But remember, God is not just merciful, God is strong. And so some of us are really good at being strong. And so, you know, we're good at pointing out the dust in their eyes. And being really strong with it. There's a strong love and the strongness of God, but we're not very good with the mercy. God is both strong and merciful. Psalm 62, verse 11. It's a beautiful, beautiful verse. So, yes, I mean, doing good to someone is sacrificing and and laboring, cleaning the house, whatever it might be. But I want to take this text, verse 5. To do good, is means this. I'm going to bring to bear whatever that person needs to grow in Christ. So whatever Hoel needs to grow in Christ, I'm going to bring it to bear. So if my father's an alcoholic, he's an alcoholic living in denial, he's wrecking our family, to do good to him is not to go along with this game that everything is hunky-dory at home. It is not to live a lie and a pretend in the house. To do good is to be merciful, knowing, number one, I'm a murderer and adulterer, yes. But to do good is to go and say, you know something? Uh, I, I'm, we're not going to continue this game anymore. Dad, I love you too much. That's, that's doing good to him. Now, his life may get worse, right? He may end up on the street. He may leave home. Rah, 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 who knows what will happen? That's right. You know something? God's God. That means you lose control, and God does control. In other words, if you love someone, you will go to war against the evil in their lives if you love them. To say nothing and do nothing is not doing good to them. To not take the speck out of their eyes is not loving. Do I hear an amen for that? In other words, it's saying to someone, I'm not going to run away from you. I'm not going to fight with you. But I'm not afraid of you either. And so I'm free to do good to you. I think of Martin Luther King Jr., to me, is a wonderful example. I, you think of him in the, in the 60s, in the Civil Rights Movement, not nasty, merciful but strong, making a stand for what was right, doing good, gets rejected, gets up and does good again. Gets, gets rejected, gets up and does it again. He did good. Are you following me, everybody? It's doing good regardless of the consequences. The problem is many of us are afraid of what might happen and so therefore we don't do good to people because we want to control the outcome. And so now we don't love as God loves and we don't do good. Now, you see, once you start doing good to people, you have battle. Did you know that God doesn't do everything you want? (laughs) That God doesn't love you that way? Could you imagine if God gave you everything you wanted Would that be loving? And sometimes you get mad at God, don't you? You get mad at God, why this, why that? Because God loves you with strength and God loves you with mercy. But He loves you with both. Listen, if you have cancer, the doctor wants to do you good, right? So the doctor may say, listen, uh, we're going to have to do chemotherapy. I have to put some poison in your body to kill this cancer. Or the doctor may say, you know something, to do good to you with cancer, I've got to send some radiation. now. I've got to burn, burn your body. Or you may say, you know something, I've got to do surgery. We've got to cut you open. But in doing that, he's doing good. If he doesn't do those painful things, he's not doing good. We are called to take the speck out, to do good to people, as God does good to us. But most of us weren't trained like that. I mean, the whole, the whole word submit to one another. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's from Ephesians 5, verse 21. We tend to put that just on the women. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But we're all called to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. That word submit, just take the word submission. Sub underneath mission. We have a mission. Our mission is a vision for this person's life for the glory of God. Our mission is that I live that you might be all that God intends for your life. That's my mission. That's submission. And so submission is not obeying you. If I say to you, Eric, honey, I want all the money. Empty out the bank accounts. Or Eric says to his wife, yes, I'm going to submit to you, honey. Here's the money. Oh, that is not submission. The mission is I want Eric to be all he can be for God. I have a vision of what he can be for the glory of God. And so, you know, Eric, why do you want that money? You know, what, what's, what are you really going after with all that? But you're not doing good by giving it to him. Let me tell you a little story from an acquaintance of mine. He hated the telephone. Hates the telephone. Doesn't like to answer it. And so his habit was, even if he's close to it, he wants his wife to answer. And so often when somebody calls, he doesn't want to speak to. He'll say, "I'm not home. Tell him I'm not home." Okay. This went on for years until finally one day he says. The phone rings. He's right there at the kitchen table. Looks at his wife, who's across the living room. She has to come over. She answers the phone. Hi. Hi, Fred. How you doing? Now, she'd usually say, my husband's not available right now when he goes like this. And so Fred asks to speak to her husband. And he's there, no, no, no. No, I don't want to talk to him. And so she says, um, Fred, uh, He's right in front of me now, and he's making all these wild gestures, and he's saying that he doesn't want to come to the phone. So I'll put the phone down, and uh, why don't you give him 30 seconds to decide whether or not he wants to come to the phone. And she puts the phone down, and she leaves. at which point he got on the phone and talked to Fred. But she did good to him that day. Didn't she? Didn't she do good? Now, would she be doing good for him if she continued to control the situation by giving in? Because once she did that, she lost control. Because his anger now was going to, which it did, he went nuts <laughs> afterwards. But you see, many of us give in because we're really controlling. We don't want to know. We don't know what's going to happen. So rather than potentially have an explosion, we won't do good to the person. We'll pretend. We won't love them. We won't take the speck out of their eye. We won't love as God wants because we're too afraid. It's too risky. It's too, I don't know what's going to happen. You see, God loves questions. I You know, I think it was someone says, you know, your spouse says, you're married, oh, I hate Clinton, he's such a jerk, he's immoral, he's I'm not a believer. So here you are, you're a spouse, you're listening to this. And you say, well, remember God asked a lot of questions? He says to Adam, where are you? God knew where Adam was. He says to Cain, why are you angry? God knew Cain, you know, God knew why Cain was angry. Questions are really powerful. So your spouse starts ripping up Clinton for being a terrible, immoral, horrible, Present, he should da da da. And so you say, honey. Every time you seem to talk about the president, you seem so sure that you know he's evil. But you know it says in First Peter, and Peter was writing at a time when Nero was the emperor of Rome, and he was burning Christians at the stake. And Peter says that we're to honor our rulers. Uh, honey. And pray for them. What do you think about that passage? <laughs> Any thoughts, honey? <laughs> now, that's doing good to your spouse. That's cultivating and shaping a destiny for your marriage. But yes, you say, well, who do you think you are telling me that? Well, I'm a, just a murderer and an adulterer, but you know... But I might want to tell you, it's true. But you see, there's a posture of doing good. We're always ready to forgive because I know how much I've been forgiven. I live in this daily. The fact that so I'm always ready to forgive. But you know, I can't forgive someone who's not asking for forgiveness. Does God forgive everybody? No, because not everybody comes for forgiveness. So they carry their own sins. So some of us, we we want to forgive but the person's not even asking forgiveness. If your brother repents, forgive him, it says. Well, he's got to repent to be forgiven. I mean, Luke 15, the prodigal son runs away. The father doesn't forgive him until he comes back. But the father's waiting. You see, we have a posture of desiring to cancel all debts. See, I can say to my spouse, there's nothing you can do that will cause me not to love you with mercy and strength. And I'm always desirous of forgiving you. But, there's a, there's a there's a piece for you, too. Are, are you following me, everybody? Go with me to Luke 15 for just a moment. I want to just... Luke 15. It's, it's a parable of the prodigal son. And I want to close with this. That's time text. Luke 15. You see, I, I can't get into this theme of forgiveness and what it really is. We will, I don't know, another series, hopefully soon. But you see... When there's re- real re- reconciliation, when there's real repentance and reconciliation between two people, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a festival. There's dancing and drinking. There's a celebration. And that's what happens here. But uh, some of us have very... Because su- we don't want to deal with doing good to people. We don't want to deal with truthful issues. We don't want to disrupt things. And so we never really get to that real point because it's too much hard work. But again, in, in, uh, if you're going to shape the destiny of your marriage, it will require... Willingness to repent on your end first, taking my log out, my sin is greater than my spouse's, and secondly, a willingness to do good even though I can't control the outcome. I'll say something really heavy, and I'll say it because oh, take it off the tape, Craig. You have to love the person more than you love the relationship to really love them. Because if you're so intent on holding on to the relationship as a friend, even as a spouse, even as a child with your parent, if you're so intent on holding on to the relationship that you're not willing to do good and speak truth, you're not loving that person. What I'm saying is that it's true. That person may hate your guts. Hopefully you're doing it in a loving, gentle way. And they may walk out on you. That is true. I mean, who can control that? But most of the time, this thing will turn out for good. But to guarantee that it always will, no one can guarantee that but God. That's why doing good sometimes has great cost to it. And that's why few believers do good. Because we're too afraid of what the consequences might be. But I want to encourage you. You do good, God will back you up. And it's the only way to experience real intimacy in your marriage and real intimacy with your friends. It's the only way we'll ever be a mature, healthy church. There's no other path. But is everyone going to like you and love you? But if that's your lusting and craving that, you really can't love people. Because it requires you, number one, to be repentant, broken. The fact that I'm a murderer and adulterer, but a willingness to do good and trust the rest to God. I'll be prophet, priest, and king to people with the love of Christ in my heart, but I can't control the rest. Okay, with those two ingredients, you can build a positive future. Without those two ingredients, I don't care if you read 20 marriage books on four steps to a happy, wonderful, beautiful marriage. It's not going to happen. It's just not, it, this is foundational. Luke 15, let me close with this. Think of this. In Luke 15, the son runs away. He rebels, he goes his own way, just like we do all the time. Just like I did this morning with God over daylight savings time. I ran away. I said, I'm mad at you, God. I don't like the way you treat me. Life is hard. You should have made it fall. It's going to be spring. I'm tired. of the event last night. But the son has got to make some choices to come back. When the son comes back, the father receives him. But until the son comes back, there's no forgiveness. He's got to come home. Every day, listen to me, every day in the Christian life, we've got to come home to the father. Over and over and over again. Because we wander into murder and adultery and idolatry. and We've got to come home. And Our life is one of coming home. But the great news, look what the father does before you come home. Before you come home, it says the father, while he was still a long way off, where are we, verse, oh, I don't know, Uh, verse 920. While he was still a long way off, the father saw him, was filled with compassion. Verse 20, the father was waiting and looking. Oh boy, most of us feel like, you know how God feels towards me? Many of us feel like this, he's got his arms crossed, he's angry. Ah, you're coming back for forgiveness, again. Hmm, Adultery again. More murder. Do you know Galatians 6? Whatever a man sows, he shall reap. <laughs> and many of us feel like that's, that's God. That's how he feels. And in, in the extra-biblical text on Luke 4, 15, tell us that commonly what, what was expected in this situation when a son had squandered his inheritance, was his, his son would come groveling at the ground when he's about four feet away, on the dust on his belly to the father, if the father felt his repentance was sincere enough, he would make him for five to ten years a slave, a servant. After which, if he's proved himself repentant and sincere, he could once again become an heir and a son. But that's not what the father... Many of us think we see God like that. That's not our God. The father, number one, he waits. And then when he sees the son a long way off, it says he he, he runs. That's an incredible... I heard the song, someone told me, he runs to his son. God runs to you. In those days, they wore togas, kind of like our bathrobes. And you've heard the expression, gird up your loins, which was a, a term used for war. That means they could run at wartime, but it was kind of seen as a shameful thing for a man to do. I mean, you know, bathrobes flying, but here's the father. I mean, He runs to the son, and the son who's ashamed, the father, in a sense, bears the shame, and he runs. And he bears the son's shame, and he runs like a, you know, like it's his problem. And then he parties. He says, I love this verse. Look at verse verse 22. He says, grab quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Verse 23, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. How many of you have ever been to a Jewish wedding? Dancing. Have you seen God throws a party and he celebrates and he dances over his son who's come back. When you come home, and every time you come home, God dances over you. What kind of God do you serve? Does your God dance over you? Yes! He does. And he dances over the Son. Why? Because of the cross and the blood of Jesus. It's all been taken care of. And every time you come home, your Father dances over you. Can you receive that today? Can I receive that today after having been married? You know, C.S. Lewis once said, dullness and boredom are not of God. Dullness and boredom are not of God. Many believers live dull, boring lives. Number one, because they don't see the depth of their sin. They're not silenced. Do you understand that every day we should be silenced? Like, I can't believe I have a Savior. I I mean, not the fact that I saved a number of years ago, but even today I have a Savior. I'm at the edge. What am I going to do? That kind of a desperation and and, and the fact that now God dances over me. And you know something, guys? That gives me courage to do good. If I have a God that treats me like that, I don't have to worry about what people could do to me or say to me or think about